Do you love me? It's always an important question, isn't it? Do you love me? Whether it be a parent asking a child or a child asking a parent or a girl asking a boy, a husband asking his wife, a sister asking her brother, do you love me? It's always an important question. The answer to that question, that really matters, doesn't it? That's a big one. It's direct, it's personal, it matters. Do you love me? It's always an important question. But you know what? It's never more important. It cannot be more important than when it is asked by Jesus. A direct and personal question by Jesus, the Son of God, do you love me? You know, three times Jesus asked that very question of the Apostle Peter. Not long after his resurrection, you can read about it in John chapter 21. You may remember that three times before Jesus' Jesus' death, Peter had denied any connection to Jesus. Three times he denied Jesus. And so three times after his resurrection, Jesus asked Peter directly and personally, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, do you truly love me? Peter, do you love me? It's interesting, you know, but when Peter came to write his letter to suffering Christians, the letter in the Bible that we call 1 Peter, he wrote these words. It's in chapter 1 of his letter. He wrote this. Though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. See, the expectation of Jesus, the expectation of the Bible is that we love him. We love Jesus. But of course, love comes in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, doesn't it? Love means all sorts of different things depending on the relationship, depending on the person who's saying it. For some people, they say, I love you, and that means a whole lot. For some other people, they say, I love you, and it means very little. A love for a brother and sister is different to a love between a husband and a wife. So what should it mean to love Jesus. When Jesus asks, do you love me? What is he asking? It's with that question in mind that we're going to turn to our passage tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 18. But we're sort of jumping in the middle of the book of 1 Samuel and so we need to sort of give a bit of context, work out where we're at. And hopefully, don't tell me if you can't, if you're here, please don't tell me, but hopefully you remember that earlier and you actually work through chapters 1 to 17 of, of 1 Samuel. I'm just looking down so no one's got that puzzled look. Thanks, you know. Did we? We did. And the last thing we read was perhaps the most famous incident in the whole book. You can glance at it in chapter 17, just a quick glance, but it's the victory of David over Goliath. That's where we finished. And what a victory! What a victory. Remember, the Philistines were the greatest threat to the, existent, the existence of the Israelite nation. And they were a very serious threat. And Goliath was a very serious champion warrior of the Philistines. Nine feet high, this guy was covered in muscles, the complete state-of-the-art armor. And for 40 days, this giant tormented them and tormented the Lord who they served. And the whole of that time that Goliath was taunting them, the Israelite army spent the whole time hiding in fear because they were about to become either dead 
or the slaves of the Philistines. And then we read, remember, in chapter 17 that David, just a youth at the time, stepped forward and defeated the enemy, the famous sling. He saved the people. It was an incredible victory. It was an incredible act of salvation. And so chapter 18 opens with that victory still resounding. Okay, It's still resounding in the air. David is now the one who has saved Israel. David is now the one who had defeated Goliath. But that may be the most famous incident in the book of 1 Samuel. But let me tell you, there is a more significant moment in the life of David. And you may remember it from our, from our working our way through the chapters. It actually happened, this more significant moment, the chapter before, in chapter 16. It was in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel that the Lord God chose David to be his king. It was in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, the chapter before Goliath, where David became the anointed one of the Lord. It's where David became the Christ of the Lord because that's what Christ means. It means anointed one. It means Messiah. It means king. And in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, Samuel was... Uh, Sorry, David was anointed by the prophet Samuel with oil and the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And of course that was far more significant than David defeating Goliath because that, that fact of him being the anointed one, that actually explains how David was able to defeat Goliath in the first place. He defeated Goliath as the anointed one of the Lord. He defeated Goliath as the Christ. And all of that is really important for us to recall because as we continue to read into 1 Samuel, we need to recognize that David is not just anybody. He's not just one of the people of God. He's not just the one who defeated Goliath. He is the Lord's anointed one. He is God's chosen king. He is the Christ. And that's especially significant, of course, isn't it? Because in these stories of David that we're going to be reading together over the next four weeks, in these stories of David, we're going to be learning and seeing what it is to be the Christ. We're going to learn and see what it is to follow the Christ. In these chapters of 1 Samuel, we are reading, if you like, the foundations of the Christ, the one who was to come from David's family, from David's family tree, the one who would come and inherit the title of Christ most fully and most completely, Jesus. Because you know what? As you keep on reading 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it becomes clear that David actually, in the end, failed to fulfill the role given to him. He failed to live up to the role Christ. But Jesus, he would not fail. Jesus is the Christ. And in the same way, you know that you might look at at the blueprints of a building, the blueprints of a building to learn something of the building itself. In the same way that you might see a shadow and that shadow tells you something of the reality behind it. In these stories of David, the Christ, little c, if you like, in these stories of David, the little c Christ, we see and learn truths about Jesus, the ultimate Christ, capital C, the Christ. 
And so tonight especially we're going to see and learn something of what it is to love the Christ. So point one on your outline and uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to uh, read your Bible together and to think about it carefully together. And tonight, Father, we want to pray that you'd help us to understand what it should mean to love Jesus. We want to get this one right, Father. And as we read these stories of David, we want to learn something of David's greatest ancestor, Jesus. Help us with this, Father, we pray. Amen. Well, point one on your outline and verse one of chapter 18. Let me read. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. One of the things that stands out in these chapters of 1 Samuel that we'll be looking at is this amazing friendship between Jonathan and David. And there's much in their relationship that that can teach us good things about friendship. But look, hopefully you already figured out, this is no ordinary friendship. This is not a friendship between two believers. David was the Christ. And so much more than a friend, Jonathan in these chapters really models for us what it is to be a disciple of the Christ, what, is, what it is to be a follower of the Christ. And that's seen really clearly in these opening verses I've just read for you. In the space of three verses, we're told twice that Jonathan loved David. It becomes clear later that David loved Jonathan too, but it's Jonathan's love for David which is the focus of these verses. And notice what you can learn about this love here, this love between Jonathan or this love of Jonathan for David. It is a committed love. Twice we're told Jonathan loved David as himself. We're going to see as the story unfolds that it's a costly love. It will involve sacrifice. But Jonathan was committed to David. And in verse 3 we see that because Jonathan demonstrates this commitment by making a covenant with David, a binding commitment to David. A commitment, a promise of loyalty to David. A commitment that would have been guaranteed by his own life. And immediately we should see that, look, it is no easy thing to love the Christ of God. It is a very serious thing. It is a serious commitment. And look at how seriously Jonathan loved David. Can you see it as I read verse 4? Have a look. Think about what's happening here. Jonathan, verse 4, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. I've reminded you already of who David is in these chapters. Let's not forget who Jonathan was. He was Saul's son. Saul was the king of Israel. Although the Lord had rejected him as the king, although the Lord had chosen David to replace him, Saul at this time still reigns. Okay? If you went down the street to the shops and you bumped into an Israelite at this time and you said, who's the king? They would have said, Saul. He wore the crown. He sat on the throne. He was the king. David was the Christ, but his anointing was hidden. 
at this time. Real, but hidden. Saul hadn't even figured it out yet. So Saul was king. Join the dots. That means Jonathan was the prince. Jonathan was next in line for the throne. He was the crown prince. Now have a look at verse 4 again and see what a difference that ought to make between the encounter between Jonathan and David described there. Can you see it? Here is the crown prince of Israel committing his love to the Lord's anointed. And as he takes off his royal robe, as he takes off his royal tunic, and as he gives them to David, can you see what he is symbolizing? In giving David his sword and his bow and his belt, can you see what Jonathan is saying? He is abdicating. He is renouncing his rights to the throne. He is saying, David, I should not rule you. You should rule me. Jonathan, in doing that act, was promising to work and to strive for the exaltation of David. He was saying, I must become less, you must become more. Because, you see, Jonathan loved the Christ. And to love the Christ is to recognize the authority of the Christ. To love the Christ is to serve the Christ. To love the Christ is to be committed to the Christ and his purposes. That's what love for the Christ meant for Jonathan. But of course, such a response wasn't universal. Not everyone loved David like that. And chief among those who didn't was Jonathan's father, Saul. Point two in your outline and verse five. Let me read. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? It's a very human response there, isn't it? Jonathan gladly handed over the kingdom to David. Saul is determined jealously to hang on to it. And his question there in verse 8, did you see it? Verse 8, what more can he get but the kingdom? That's dripping with unintended irony, isn't it? The Lord had already told Saul that he was tearing the kingdom of Israel away from him. He'd already told, told Saul that he was going to give the kingdom to a man of his choosing. And we know it, as the readers of 1 Samuel, we know it to be David. But Saul hasn't joined the dots quite yet. He will very soon. But we know the kingdom will certainly be David's. And yet Saul was determined to oppose the Lord's purposes. And really, you know, that determination sets the scene for the rest of 1 Samuel. The rest of 1 Samuel will describe the efforts of Saul to prevent David gaining the kingdom. But let's see how it plays out here. Verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. I'm guessing that there was a phrase that jumped out at you there. Maybe the phrase, an evil spirit from God, might have jumped off the page at you a bit there. It's a bit unusual, isn't it? 
But it's not the first time we've read it in 1 Samuel. The first time we read about it in 1 Samuel is back in chapter 16. In chapter 16 and verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon David in power. In chapter 16, verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Chapter 16, verse 14. It's actually part of the Lord's judgment on Saul. It's evil in the sense of harmful. And so if you've got an NIV, you'll notice down the, there'll be a little footnote down the bottom of your page somewhere that says injurious, which is a big word meaning harmful, causing injury. It's not morally evil, but this spirit did cause Saul great distress. It terrorized him. And we can read about it coming upon him at various times. It may have been some sort of mental or emotional disturbance, but it clearly had a terrible effect on Saul. And although the NIV describes Saul as prophesying under its effect, a better word would be raving. So if you've got an ESV, you'll find it's got the word raving rather than prophesying. It's a tricky one. It's actually the same word, and you've got to work it out in terms of context. But because it's a harmful spirit, clearly it's a very negative thing. And so Saul is raving under the effect of uh, this harmful spirit. So picture the scene. Picture the scene. I haven't confused things there. Picture the scene. David the anointed one with the spirit of the Lord, God's chosen king. There he is. Saul, the spirit of the Lord had been taken away from him, had been replaced by a harmful spirit. There he is raving, God's rejected king. They are in the room together. What's going to happen? Pick it up again at verse 10, halfway through. Saul had a spear in his hand. And he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Dramatically, the very opposite to Jonathan's response to David. David sort of gladly gave David his uh, sword. In a sense, Saul gave David his spear, but in a bit of a different way. (laughs) Hurled it at him, wanted to pin him through to the wall. Not love, jealousy, fear loathing and in verse 12 Saul seems to have recognized something for the very first time if you have a look at verse 12 he recognizes that the Lord is with David but no longer with him that's a really important recognition but it does nothing to change Saul's fear it only heightens it and so he sends David away from him but as we continue to read it seems that Jonathan's love for David is actually matched by the people. It's not shared by Saul, but it is matched by the people. Point three on your outline and verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. Uh, David being given command over a thousand men seems pretty impressive, but it may actually have been a demotion in rank from Saul. Back in verse 5, we're told that Saul had given David a very high rank and maybe here in jealousy, he's, he's demoted him. He's, he's now just the commander of a thousand men. Hard to be certain. What is certain, though, is the success of David. Verse 14, in everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. The victory over Goliath, you see, wasn't a one-off. David was an ongoing saviour of his people against their enemies and the reason that he is is spelled out really clearly isn't it because the lord 
was with him. The Spirit of the Lord was with him in power. And so just like he did against Goliath, the Lord continued to give David victory on behalf of his people. Saul recognized it and so did the people. Verse 15, verse 15, when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul feared David as the Christ. He feared him as a rival, but the people loved him as a saviour. You see it? The people loved David as Jonathan loved him, as God's saviour king, the one who would go out and come in before them, the one who would fight for them against their enemies, the one who would lead them, the one who would save them. They loved him as their saviour king. And it was a love of loyalty, a love of dependence, a love of commitment, and a love of trust. As we keep on reading, we discover that even Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. And sure, that was a love of a man and a woman sort of love, but it was also the love for the one whom the Lord was with, love for the anointed one, love for the leader, love for the saviour of her people. A love that contrasted very sharply with her father's response. And in verse 28, we read that Saul realized again that the Lord was with David, verse 28, and that his daughter Michal loved David. And so Saul became still more afraid of him. And he remained his enemy the rest of his days. A tragic response. And we're going to think some more about it next week as it flows into chapter 19. But can I say a far wiser response was that of Michal and the people and Jonathan who loved the Christ, for it was a love very well placed. It was a really wise love, and we can see it in how the chapter ends. Verse 30, verse 30, last sentence. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. The Lord was with David. He was with his chosen king. He was the one who was able to lead and save his people. He was well deserving of the love of loyalty, dependence, commitment and trust. It was a love well placed, that love for David. And yet, of course, I hope you know where I'm going next. It's no surprise. I hope you know where I'm going next. As wise as it was back then to love David, the small sea Christ. How much wiser to love David's greatest ancestor, the ultimate Christ, the capital C Christ, if you like, the Lord Jesus himself. And so we return to the question that Jesus posed to Peter after his resurrection. The question, remember it? Jesus looked at Peter and said, do you love me? In other words, do you recognize me as God's forever king? Are you willing, Peter, to be loyal to me above all other things, above all other people? Will you be committed to me? Will you trust me? Will you obey me? Do you love me? And Peter's reply in John chapter 21, Peter's reply, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he did. And we can see it in Peter's life of service to Jesus from that point on. He obeyed Jesus above all the men he used to fear. He trusted Jesus more than anyone or anything else. 
He was committed to Jesus. Peter was even willing to die for Jesus. He loved Jesus. And remember Peter's assumption in his letter? His assumption is that we too, just like him, would love Jesus. And even though we have not seen Jesus, that we would love Jesus and believe in Jesus. And so can I say the question before each and every one of us tonight, each and every one of you, is a question from Jesus himself. Jesus stands before you tonight and he says to you, do you love me? Just like Jonathan and Michal and the people of Old Testament Israel, do you love Jesus? Do you love him as the one who would go out and come in before you? Do you love Jesus as the one who would fight for you against your enemies? Do you love Jesus because he would lead you, who would save you? For, of course, David, as impressive as it was, he merely defeated a nine-foot giant. David merely defeated hordes and hordes of Philistine soldiers. Jesus defeated death and the devil on behalf of his people. Jesus was willing to go even to the cross on behalf of his people. Jesus was prepared to suffer the humiliation and the horror of crucifixion for his people. Jesus was willing to be presented as a sacrifice of atonement for his people. Jesus was willing to bear the sin of his people. Jesus was willing to die in the place of his people. So that even we, sitting in this room tonight, so that even we might be forgiven and cleansed, just like Bernice talked about, cleansed and made right with God. So that even we could be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, Jesus' kingdom of light. And Jesus has gone ahead to prepare for us a place for his, in his kingdom, a place for his people. And Jesus will return to gather his people and he will welcome them that time into life forever and full. He will welcome them into the presence of his Father. Jesus is the Christ. And so, do you love him? Do you love him as your saviour king? Do you love him with the loyalty, the dependence, the commitment? Do you trust him? Do you love him with an obedient love? You know, before, a little while before actually, Jesus asked Peter that most important question, do you love me? Even before Jesus' resurrection, even before Jesus' death, Jesus had already explained what love for him would look like. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's in John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, we read this. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Do you love Jesus? Then you will obey him. 
You'll obey his teaching. You'll obey his commands. Because the one whom you say you love is the king. To have faith in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to love Jesus, is to obey Jesus. It's exactly what we learned last week in James. If anyone loves Jesus, they will obey the teaching of Jesus. If you do not obey Jesus, then you do not love him. What should it mean to love Jesus? That's our question tonight. What should it mean to love Jesus? It's more than warm feelings. It's more than singing songs with your eyes closed. It's more than mere words. It's a life given to obeying Jesus. Love for Jesus means obedience to Jesus. So we need to throw off all pretensions that we might have of somehow being in charge of our life. We need to step down from our sort of pretend throne. Just like Jonathan, we need to take off our so-called royal robe, our tunic, the things that we hoped might save us but can never do it. We need to take off our sword and our bow and our belt. We need to give them all to Jesus. We need to submit to him. We need to surrender to him as our saviour king. If we love Jesus, we will read his word and we will do what he says. It's very simple and very profound. We will read his word and we will do what he says. And before you say, that's too hard, I can't do that. Well, look at the promise in Jesus' words there in verse chapter 14. You see them? Jesus promises, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That is astonishing, isn't it? That's astonishing. Jesus promises his people the love of him and his father. They are worthy of our love and obedience. They need not ask. They are just worthy of it. We are not worthy of their love, but they graciously love even us. And incredibly, in the person of the Holy Spirit, they come to us and make their home with us. The Spirit who leads us into loving obedience and loyalty and trust and commitment. So we're not trying to obey Jesus on our own, but we are trying to obey Jesus if we love him. Submit to Jesus Surrender to Jesus, obey Jesus, for he is your saviour, king. And Jesus stands before us tonight and he has a question for us. He has a question for you. His question is very simple and very profound. Do you love me? And my prayerful hope is that each one of us may be able to answer, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to love Jesus. We ask, Father, that you'd strip away our arrogance and our pride. Forgive us, Father, for pretending that there are things in our life that we can be in control of, in charge of. 
Father, it's a foolish joke. It's a terrible dishonour. Father, like Jonathan and the people, but even more so, we want to pray that you would clearly and deeply convict us that Jesus is the Christ and that we would love him with a worthy love, a love of commitment and obedience and trust. Father, I'm sure there are things in our life, even now, that we know should not belong if we're following Jesus, but we're reluctant to get rid of them. We're reluctant to own up to them. We're reluctant to do something about them. And Father, we want to pray that tonight, by your Spirit, you might give us the courage and the strength and just the rightness to say no, no more. Father, we want to be able to answer Jesus honestly and say, yes, Lord, we, you know that we love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And we want to have a life, Father, that backs that up. And Father, we're very grateful for your patience and your grace and your mercy. Incredibly grateful, Father, for your forgiveness. So please change us. Help us to be so convicted of the truth of Jesus that we would shape our lives accordingly. Help us to love Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.